get out of here. <laughs> I'm joking. <laughs> Come and stay. Um, <laughs> what's more awkward? Um, y'all, welcome to RUF. My name is Simon Stokes. It's so good to be with you here on this last RUF of the semester. Um, man, I really I have no idea what to say. I'm just kind of at a loss of, for words, which is a weird thing because a lot of my job is actually to just talk at people. Um, I will say this. For me, RUF, and this was me as a student, was a place where I could really screw up and where I could fail. And where, I mean, I, had, I made serious mistakes in college. And if you want to talk about that, I'm happy to tell you some stories after this uh, when it's not recorded. Uh, <laughs> sorry, podcast listeners. I mean, mom. <laughs> um, but REF was a place where I could really screw up and fail, and someone would still love me and give me grace and point me in the direction of Christ and point me away from myself and point me away from you know trying harder but actually point me towards people who would love me and towards a God who would love me. And that has transformed my life in ways that I don't even know, but I just know that it has. And I want to say that I really hope that REF here is that kind of place too, and that I think that if it is, it's because a lot of the seniors that are here tonight, um, that you all really let God's grace, or God worked his grace into your heart in such a way that you really loved people. And there are a lot of people in this room who are here because of you. And that's a really beautiful thing. And that's the kind of community that I've just, I just want to be a part of. You know, I always tell myself I should build the kind of ministry that I would want to be in. And I think because of y'all, like, we have. And so I'm just so grateful for y'all. I mean, RUF is not me. RUF is you. And it's God's work in you. And so I'm just glad to be here with y'all. I'm glad to get to do this with y'all, and I'm so, so thankful to get to be with y'all um, because God's grace is real, and it really does things in people's lives, and it's changed my life, and I hope it's changed your lives as well. So thank you. We'll talk more about that later, especially at Senior Send-Off, which would be amazing. Um, if you, By the way, if you want to see Katie Stokes and a baby Peter sighting, Senior Send-Off is the way to go. Uh, <laughs> just <saying>. uh, <laughs> And all right, ooh. <laughs> um, y'all, we are wrapping up uh, the book of Ephesians here. And this is the letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to the church of Ephesus. And he really just, he wrote this as a man who is in prison for the gospel. He so strongly believed in who Jesus was and what Jesus had done in the world that he went to jail for it for years. And as he wrote, he wrote with hope and love and faith to people like us who really need encouragement, who need truth, who need love and need a community that's formed by those things. And so here we are at the end of Paul's letter, and we're looking at his final words to people who wrestle with the gospel, who wrestle with Jesus, who wrestle with the reality of the brokenness of the world, and yet are called by God into those things too. So this is Ephesians 6. The Apostle Paul writing, he says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, 
Take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and, as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me, that words may be given to me and opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. It's God's word. Let me pray for us and we'll get started. Jesus, you've given us your word because you're real, because you're true, because you're good, because you speak to us, because you love us. Um, Jesus, be with us tonight. Show us your love and show us your truth. Help us to walk in the world as your people. Lord, help us to really wrestle and struggle against the darkness of the world and the evil of the world, and to do that with the knowledge of you and of your love and your power and your goodness. Help us to do that tonight because we're here with one another and with you. In your name we pray, amen. Uh, So this is my sixth year at Carolina, which is kind of crazy. And I guess as you start to wrap things up in one year, you start to think back to like previous years and reminisces and things like that. And my, I can remember one of my first pastoral meetings I ever had at UNC, I was meeting with a guy and we were meeting in the pit. It was like a warm September day and we're sitting there kind of lounging on the steps, looking towards Lenore. And I just, I'm, I don't know anything about UNC. I've never even really been to North Carolina, and I've just moved here. And I ask him, you know, what, what's the vibe on campus between, like, the Christian community and the part of the campus that would not consider itself Christian? Like, what's that vibe? What's that like? And he looked at me and he said, you know, most of this campus is just waiting for Christians to go away so the rest of us can get down to the business of actually helping the world. I was like, I appreciate your honesty. Thank you for that. And as I thought about that conversation, I thought, I think I know what he was getting at when he said that. That there's this way of thinking about the world that maybe a lot of us have, that the real sources of suffering and kind of misery at UNC and in the world are things like depression, divorce, sexual assault, cancer, shame. The real sources of suffering and misery in the world out there are things like addiction or inequality or violence, lack of access to health care, education, ultimately things like sickness and death. And not to downplay any of those things, because they are terrible. But when Christians are doing things like worshiping or talking about sin or pointing people to the cross... Some of the assumption of that other worldview is that they're not getting at the real problems of the world. They're not dealing with how hard and messed up the world is. Actually, it's kind of like if you ever played Pokemon Go when you're kind of walking around with your phone and you look and you see like a Pokemon in a bush or a Pokemon on the street. And it's not really there, but it's kind of this game that you're playing to kind of pass the time. That's the assumption behind a lot of this stuff is that Christianity is kind of doing that. You know, with Jesus or angels or the devil or whatever, just kind of walking around and looking and imposing those things on the world. But the rest of us are going to actually do something about it. 
C.S. Lewis famously made the point that you don't want to put too much stock in spiritual evil where you're looking behind every bush and looking for a, a devil or maybe an angel. But we also don't want to put so little stock in spiritual evil that we think of things like the devil or demons or really like evil things that we can't see or touch on a regular basis as stories for little kids or things for primitive people that helped to explain stuff a long time ago. Because what I want to suggest to you tonight is that if you're here and you're looking for the real personal God of the Bible who underwrites all the beauty and goodness and truth of the world, then you should also be aware of the reality of real personal evil to match that personal good that's below that God, that's not nearly as powerful as that God, but that does have real power to direct violence and evil and sin. And that this agent and those under him is not just manipulating people, institutions, and ideas, but can actually manipulate us in some way in an effort to destroy God's good creation. And for us, I think, I know this is crazy as I say this in UNC, but for us, our problem is that culturally, we tend to dismiss the idea of spiritual evil as being something for those lesser primitive people or for kids. But if we really want to deal with the problems of a world made by God, who's a spirit, then we need to deal with real spiritual evil. Because it's hard to deny that there is real evil in the world. So tonight, I want to look at this and just ask two really simple questions. What's the problem with our take on spiritual evil? And what is Paul offering as a solution? What's the problem? What's the solution? Try to keep up. First of all, (laughs) I'm glad you're getting my sarcasm in year six. Um, (laughs) What's the problem? Look at what Paul says here. He says, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Look, I don't know how the idea of spiritual evil comes across to you. Maybe you think it's crazy. Maybe you think it's strange and a little mysterious. Maybe you look at it and you think, this actually explains a little bit of my life. I don't know. But I think there is actually a a good way to think about its evidence in the world. I'm going to throw some things at you. If you look at Germany right before the Nazis took over, it's hard to explain how a culture that was just giving us the best of music and philosophy and culture and just doing that in a way that is super modern for many of us and then suddenly take a hard right turn and they say, you know what the problem the answer to the problem of Germany is the Jews. And we need to do the Holocaust. And we need to just like blow Europe up while we're at it. Like That is insane. How do you explain that? I mean, psychology, some sociology stuff might be mixed in that. But man, I think there's a real case to be made for spiritual evil in that. Or go to the 1990s and the Rwandan genocide in Africa. Did you know that between early April and early July of 1994, more than a million Rwandan Tutsis were killed by their neighbors? Not like an army that came in, not strangers, but like it's like your neighbor who lived down the street came to your house with a machete and like killed you and your family. And a million people got killed in two months. Like that's insane, right? Like maybe there's some psychology, maybe there's some sociology in that. 
But I want to say maybe there's a case to be made for some real spiritual evil. Just consider how prevalent the effects of racism, how evil racism has been in American society with seemingly very normal, very moral people take part in terrible things consistently all the time. There are certainly places for ethnic tensions, certainly places for nationalism, certainly places for things like racism. But man, I want to suggest to you that those are instruments, those are tools that something above us that we can't see can actually manipulate and use to hurt us and hurt the world. And it's not just a product of fallen people living in a fallen world. But we live in an era where people try to explain away both the beauty of the world and the evil of the world in just purely rational, materialistic, non-transcendental terms. And I don't think that it does a very good job of explaining how full the world is and the experience of the world is. I mean, this take on things essentially says the problem of the world is not really spiritual evil. It's not things that I can't see. It's the things that I can see. And because this problem isn't fundamentally spiritual, then neither is the solution. But the problem with that assessment of things, if you're here and you're a Christian, and I don't assume that everybody is. If you're not, I'm really glad you are here. The problem, though, with that assessment of things, if you are a Christian, though, is that Christianity is about Christ. And Jesus wasn't primarily a teacher or a healer or a great leader, even though he healed and taught and led, but Jesus is primarily a savior of men and women for a God who is a spirit. That his work is to reconcile us to God and to atone for our sins. And in so doing, he defeats the spiritual powers of darkness that had held humanity captive. And that is not an interesting but odd subpoint to Christianity. That is fundamental to it. That apart from the gospel of Jesus, whenever we take something good and use it to solve the problems of the world, it ultimately leads us further away from God. Think about it like this. You and I come from a culture where money, education, stable families, opportunity to freely express ourselves and our ideas are touted as the way to save the world. But can they really do those things? One of the news clips uh, that I got from the BBC this last week uh, on the Sri Lankan bombings said that most of the people who committed those bombings were well-educated, so they got a lot of education. They came from middle and upper-middle-class families. They had the money thing going. They were financially quite independent, and their families are quite stable financially as they expressed themselves in the way that they desired, which was to kill people. The far-right protesters in Charlottesville a couple of years ago met a very similar description to those people in those bombings. Look, we all have assessments of what's wrong with the world, and certainly the Bible would agree that things like poverty, sickness, greed, ethnic and religious hatred are part of the problems of the world. It wouldn't disagree with those things. But what it's saying is that those are not the whole deal. That behind all these people and institutions and ideas and all the actions that get thrown in that in a way that you and I don't fully understand and probably should not guess at, that there are very real, very personal intelligences that are acting in the world. And as easy as it would be for us to say, well, just throw more money or more education or better justice systems at the problems of the world, that's just not strong enough medicine for what Paul's talking about here. Look, if you put education on a pedestal and you say, this is how we save the world. We're going to buy people books. We're going to get people access to education then all the people who are not as educated 
or are not just fundamentally as smart or who don't receive the same sort of educational pedigree as us, those people get marginalized. If you put economic development at the center of things, then what do you do with people who get stuck in poverty? Or people with mental illness or serious addictions where they just cannot break that cycle? Or people who just make really bad financial decisions? You tend to look down on them. You tend to put them further towards the edges. You give up on them. You come to demonize them. See them as somehow subhuman. But if you say, as bad as those problems are, and as helpful as money and education are, the real problem with people is that they are enslaved to spiritual forces beyond their control. It means then that terrorists and racists and people who carry out assault are not the ultimate problem you have to deal with. That even though those people have done bad things, the ultimate bad is something that stands above them. And if you're willing to say that, then one, it means this person is not fundamentally your enemy and that they can be redeemed from evil. That through Christ, they can be reconciled and forgiven just as you were because, like you, they are someone who without Jesus is toast. But two, it also means that when you're wrestling against real evil, it's more than a fight against what you can see. It's not just flesh and blood that you're dealing with. And so it's not ultimately on you. There's this reality that can only be dealt with on a spiritual level by spiritual means, such as prayer and God's word and the preaching of the gospel. And it means it's ultimately on God to deal with the ultimate problems of the world. And part of the beauty of Christianity is that we fight an enemy that is already beaten and defeated, even though it's still present. Think about it like this. It's like in D-Day, in World War II, where Nazi Germany had all of Europe to itself. It was like fortress Europe with the Nazis. And the Allies land on the beaches of Normandy, and they establish this beachhead. And historians have looked back on that and said, you know, that was the moment where the Allies won the war and the Germans lost the war, and that everything after that was cleanup. And so it is with you as a Christian. That what we celebrate in Easter is that Jesus has defeated death and sin and hell. And so what it means is that all those things are still present and yet they are defeated. And so everything in our life, what we're doing here, is clean up for what God is going to ultimately finish for us. So how do you enter into that? If that's the problem, how do you take part in some of that cleanup? Look at what Paul says here. He says, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. And then he lists the armor of God, right? It's the belt of truth, helmet of salvation, breastplate of righteousness, sandals, there's a shield, there's a sword. Really cool stuff, right? And I wish I had time to get into all kind of the, the minutiae of what those things might mean, but I don't. Each one is probably worthy of a sermon in its own right. But when we talk about the armor as a whole, what is the armor? I mean, is it like in a video game where if you do a bunch of Christian stuff, you level up, and it's like, da-da-da, you have earned the belt of truth. You know? <laughs> like, how does this work? <laughs> What's the armor? As far as we can tell... Paul is looking back to the Old Testament book of Isaiah, and he's looking at the armor that the Messiah, the leader of God's people, was going to wear. Like, this is the guy that defends God's people, protects God's people, cares for God's people. Ultimately, Jesus is that Messiah. 
Which means that as you struggle with evil in the world and your problems and the problems of the people around you, and you know that there's more than what you can see, but you don't know how all that works. Paul is saying to you, so identify with Jesus and what he's like and what he loves and how he acts and what he's about in the world and what he's promised to you that it's like you wear him and you're enfolded in, your, in his life and you're so protected and upheld even as you struggle against the spiritual powers of the world that he's with you and cares for you. Now, I don't know if, how much you've heard about it, but there's so many stories that have come out of the Sri Lankan bombings this last weekend and so many terrible, horrible things that came from it. I, I read a a news report about a woman who lost her husband in one of the church bombings, and she said that they'd gone to church like they do every week. She's teaching a Sunday school like she does every week. And in between the Sunday school time and the church time, she takes her kids into kind of this courtyard of the church, and she's feeding them snacks, which, you know, as a parent is something that's super relatable, uh, in between Sunday school and service. And her husband is with her, and he sees this kind of strange guy they don't know kind of walking through the courtyard. He's got this huge backpack on, and her husband goes and approaches the guy, and he says, hey, what are you doing? And the guy says, you know, this backpack is just full of video equipment. I'm here to record the service that's about to happen. And he says, well, I haven't heard about that, and he volunteered a lot with the church. So if you just wait here with me, we'll wait till someone comes and kind of affirms that. And so the wife takes her kids into the service, and a few minutes later they hear the explosion and there's chaos and pandemonium. People are running out. And she runs out and, you know, her husband was one of the first people to be killed. And he was killed instantly by the bomb because he's with the guy right there. And as she's recounting this and she's mourning over it, she's just rocking back and forth and saying, I love my Jesus. I love my Jesus. I love my Jesus. And she was mourning, but she's also putting on the armor of God. She's putting on faith and hope and love and what it means for the gospel to be true in a world that is broken by evil. And when you think about things like Sri Lanka, I mean, you have to wonder, like, is the answer to Sri Lanka more violence? Like, we're going to get these people and do to them exactly what they did to us, and we're going to make them pay as though that we could ever receive back what they took. Is the answer more education? Like, as though... People just need to read the right books and listen to the right diverse chorus of voices, and then we could finally stop violence. As though, you know, educated, diverse places don't also have a problem with violence. Is the answer to your experience in the world of how sad the world makes you feel to get a big enough degree and do enough internships so that someone will finally let you be in charge so that you can fix things and finally make enough money to live in a nice house where nothing evil will ever be allowed to come? Is that the answer? The answer to the brokenness of the world is to wrap ourselves in Jesus and to push towards those who've hated us and wounded us like Jesus did. And that does not mean that it's easy. It's very hard. Look, it's very easy to become a Christian. It's very, very difficult to actually live as a Christian. And the Bible is super upfront about that. Paul tells us to wrestle with spiritual evil. He tells us to put on the armor of God because there's going to be a fight. He tells us to stand firm and be ready. He's writing this as a prisoner in chains. 
None of this is easy. To put on the armor of God is to put on Christ and his benefits, but that's not the same thing as saying, this is going to be an easy go of things. Look, if you're here and you're a Christian, does that make better sense of your life with God than to say, you know, believe in Jesus and everything will just magically work out? Like, one day it will work out in the new heavens and the new earth when Jesus wipes away your tears. But right now it's a street fight. Maybe you feel like you're here and you like, are wrestling with evil. Like, this is what you're doing right now. Like, and the semester just did not go the way you planned, and stuff was hard, and you're getting more and more disappointed with how things are going in your life. And as that happens, you're getting more and more cynical. Like, nothing ever really works out. Everybody's fake. I can try, it doesn't matter. I cannot try, it doesn't matter. And you're getting more and more cynical. You have less and less hope and less joy. Instead of letting that wash over you, have you ever thought about just wrestling with that and fighting that? Essentially saying, you know, if God can take the death of his son on a cross and use that to my good and defeat the powers of evil, then I guess that means he can take my bad breakup and my not great grades and a summer at home in my parents' basement instead of somewhere cool and use it to my good as well. Maybe you're here and you think you're ready to really do some good in the world. Like, yes, get me ready. I'm ready to go out and do something great. Like maybe you're about to graduate and you're moving into the world in an incredible way. Look, what makes you ready? Like, readiness comes from the gospel. And the gospel says, you know, you're a sinner. And so you're ready when you're able to say, Jesus, accept me not based on me, but accept me based on you, and wrap yourself in him. Like, the world doesn't need more people who point the brokenness of the world back to themselves. The world needs people who say, I'm a sinner, but I have a great Savior. That's what the world needs. And you're ready when, when you're able to do that. Look, spiritual warfare is not just out there either. It's in us too. Have you ever done something bad? Like something really bad and not felt guilty about it at all? I have. But then later, you think about it and it just gnaws at you? And it's kind of like, how can you come in here and sing these songs and hug these people doing what you've been doing? How can you call yourself one of God's people when you don't act like one of God's people? Don't you know that he's holy? Look at how not holy you are. What are you doing with this stuff? And his people, you don't belong here? Do you know how a Christian fights that? How do you fight that kind of spiritual warfare? You say, you know what? You're right. I don't belong here. In fact, you are naming the tip of the iceberg. I am such a sinner that in every area of my life, I have substituted myself for God. I have lived as though my word were the final word. But as much as I put myself on, my th- on his throne and substitute myself for him, even more so, he has put himself on my cross and substituted himself for me. That Jesus Christ is the answer to the brokenness of the world and the pain and the spiritual warfare that you endure. That he is armor for you. Because on the cross he lost his armor. He is righteousness for people who do not naturally show up as righteous. He is so not ashamed of your weakness and your guilt and your sin that he became weak and guilty and he who knew no sin became sin so that you would become the righteousness of God. 
And the thing that the church and any ministry must always be doing is to wave her hands at men and women and say, do you understand that this is supernatural? That this is not a social service we provide or a club or a group that is for civic improvement or, you know, my improvement. But that the claims of Jesus and the claims of the Bible, the, the book through which Jesus speaks, are supernatural. Like, you can be a person who is nice and moral and grew up in the church and is pleasant and helpful, you can appear to be together and you can still be enslaved to the spiritual forces of evil. But you need him to do supernaturally for you what you cannot do for yourself. Look, is being a Christian about doing a bunch of good stuff? Like, is Christian just another word for moralist? Is being a Christian about having a bunch of quiet times or reading the Bible... Being a Christian is about being transformed by Christ. It is first and foremost about being reconciled to God by His Son. It is supernatural because the most natural thing in the world would be for us to blow it and then God to write us off. But He did not do what is natural. He chose the supernatural. He chose grace. So arm yourself with that reality. And I'll end with this. Um, I love the ESPN 30 for 30s. You know, like the sports documentaries they do. Uh, Why I Hate Christian Leitner is amazing. (laughs) It's poetry in cinema. Um, (laughs) But I'm not talking about that one. one One of the best ones I've seen is on the Evander Holyfield Mike Tyson fight from the 90s. Do you remember this one? Where like, I mean, these were 90s athletes, but these are some of the best boxers in the last, last little bit. And in the, in the documentary, Tyson is just super cocky. He's not training that hard. He's not eating that well. He thinks he's going to walk into the ring, and because he's Mike Tyson, he's just going to wipe him out. But Evander Holyfield is working hard and getting nine hours of sleep a night and eating like spinach and chicken breast and you know training every day. And he's got his head down, and he's working But nobody thinks that Holyfield is going to be able to beat Tyson until they get in the ring and Evander starts to lay it on Mike Tyson. And he's whipping him. He's been training for months. And there's tons of hype. And Tyson is getting madder and madder and madder. And he's kind of getting embarrassed publicly in front of all these people. And finally, he's so frustrated and so angry that he lashes out and he bites off part of Evander Holyfield's ear. Which is crazy, right? And in the doc, Holyfield talks about how you know, he's already charged up. He's been training for months. There's tons of media fanfare around this. Everybody's watching this. Everyone had thought that Tyson would beat him, but now he's beating Tyson. And his adrenaline's flowing. This is a sport, but it's also a fist fight. So he's like totally jacked up from that. And now Mike Tyson who has talked so much trash about him, has come in and bit this huge chunk out of Holyfield's ear. It's one of the craziest moments in sports in the last few decades. And in the whole interview, Holyfield takes you back to the moment where he's clutching like the nub of his ear. And he's got all this emotion and all this adrenaline flowing through him. He's literally watches Tyson spit out part of his ear on the mat in front of him. And he is enraged, as anyone would be, right? <laughs> Can we just empathize with Holyfield for a second? He is one millisecond 
from losing it and trying to do to Tyson what Tyson has just done to him. But right as he's about to explode, he hears his trainer in the corner shouting, Don't do it, Evander! Don't do it! (laughs) Keep your mind on the Lord. Keep your mind on the Lord, Evander. And he said, I wanted to do it. I wanted to do it so bad. But I didn't. I couldn't. And Mike Tyson was disqualified. And Evander Holyfield became the heavyweight champion of the world by not fighting and by keeping his mind on the Lord. And so it must be with you. To put on Christ is to put on power made perfect through weakness. Is to put on defeating your enemies by loving your enemies. Is to set your mind on the Lord because the Lord has set his mind on you. And giving you everything by going to a cross. So stand firm in that reality. Live in it. Walk in it. Wrap yourself in it. And do battle with evil. Amen. Let me pray for us. Father, you love us enough to give us something really good to do in the world. And you love us enough not to leave us alone in that. Jesus, we pray that you'd be with us as you walk with us, Lord, through things that are really hard, through things that are really difficult, Lord, through depression, Lord, through eating disorders, God, through addictions, um, through going home to families that are really tough, to not going home and it being a really hard experience, Lord, to really doing battle against really evil things in the world, even though we're only like 20 years old and it feels way beyond our capacities. Jesus, be with us. Wrap us in yourself. Lord, help us to hold to your promises because you promised to hold to us. Lord, be with us and bless us as we go out into the world. Amen.